While I was studying for the LSAT, I started auditioning. And really quickly, when I started auditioning, I realized that people that look like me are not on TV, meaning I'm visibly disabled, I'm ethnic, I'm not super skinny, and I'm not what you see on TV. But where I did see myself was in the world of stand-up comedy. I took a class at Caroline's Comedy Club just for fun. I was like, you know, this will be really relaxing while I'm studying for the LSATs, and Being a comedian will give me kind of the chops to do great closing statements when I'm litigating. This is what I'm going to do. I took a class at Caroline's by my third gig. I was a paid comic and I never went back to school. This is Professional Confessionals. Maysoon Zayed joins us to discuss her career as a comedian and actress. It's... A huge thrill for me to be able to sit down with you and get your story. Your career path is not traditional. It's not ordinary. It's really it's unique. Yeah. yeah, it's really, really quirky. I know you started off as an actress. And let's just start from there. How your professional journey started out. So I was born in Cliffside Park, New Jersey, Mm -hmm. and the doctor who delivered me was drunk, so I ended up having cerebral palsy. My parents couldn't afford physical therapy, so they sent me a tap class, and that's where my obsession with performance began. So I would think from like maybe the age of 5 to 15, I actually thought I was going to be a dancer. But while I was dancing, I was also addicted to soap operas. So every day I would sashay home from school, turn on General Hospital, and kind of be like, someday I'm going to be on a soap opera. So I was kind of bouncing between Bolshoi Ballet and being a superstar actress when I went to college. And my parents are immigrant parents. Immigrant parents are not big fans of art. So when I went to college, I actually enrolled as a pre-law major. But the thing with pre-law is you can actually major in anything. So I had a bachelor's of arts in theater and a BS in women's studies. And I figured, you know, I'll just do the theater thing. If I'm super successful, then I won't become a lawyer. I graduated Arizona State and started studying for the LSAT. While I was studying for the LSAT, I started auditioning. And really quickly, when I started auditioning, I realized that people that look like me are not on TV, meaning I'm I'm visibly disabled, I'm ethnic, I'm not super skinny, and I'm not what you see on TV. But where I did see myself was in the world of stand-up comedy. So six months after I graduated, I took a class at Caroline's Comedy Club just for fun. I was like, you know, this will be really relaxing while I'm studying for the LSATs and Being a comedian will give me kind of the chops to do great closing statements when I'm litigating. This is what I'm going to do. I took a class at Caroline's by my third gig. I was a paid comic and I never went back to school. Wow. That's extraordinary. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. So you're supposed to struggle. Yeah. I skipped it. I (gasps) didn't struggle. (laughs) (laughs) So you've been doing stand up comedy Ever since then. I've been doing stand-up comedy now for 21 years. Yeah, I've been doing stand-up comedy for 21 years. And I remember telling my parents, I said, listen, I know this isn't the dream career for you, so we have two choices. I can quit comedy and you can pay to support me, or I can keep making money hand over fist and do this for the rest of my life. And they were like, you go with your funny self. (laughs) But my first comedy job is my favorite comedy job to share. So my first comedy job, I was hired by a man named Roger Paul to drive famous comedians to clubs in New Jersey, like Stress Factory, Bananas, Chubbies, or like the Borgata and stuff in Atlantic City. He'd give me 25 bucks and an opening spot. So I got to open for like the biggest comics you can imagine. But the thing is, he never told anyone I had cerebral palsy. So I'd pick up these really famous comedians and they'd jump in a car with a girl who was visibly shaking because cp it manifests itself differently in everybody some of us are wheelchair users some of us are nonverbal. in my case i shake all the time so these guys would jump and they were always guys they would jump into the car and i'd be shaking from you know 
head to toe and they'd be like oh my god this spazzy girl is going to drive us down the new jersey turnpike at 90 miles an hour and they were terrified and then i would whip into the disabled spot and i became the most requested opener and i know it was for the parking i just know it (laughs) so that was my first comedy job that's great so you'd you'd Open for all of these guys. How how long did you do that? And and I opened for comics for the first four years. Huh. And the way that I transitioned was really really sad. Um, September 11th happened, so I was deep into stand up comedy, but I still wasn't making exactly enough to support myself. So during the day, I would substitute teach, and I got a long term gig substitute teaching at a Catholic school called Notre Dame in Palisades Park, New Jersey, because a woman went on maternity leave and I took her spot. So I'd get up, I would substitute teach all day, and then in the night I would go and do shows and open mics and bringers and all this other stuff. And I was paid, but it wasn't the level I wanted. 9-11 happened, and all of a sudden there was this horrifying backlash against Arabs and Muslims in America. I happen to be both of those things because you could be Arab in any religion, you could be Muslim in any ethnicity, nationality. But I was Arab and Muslim, and a friend of mine, a fellow comic named Dean Obidala, reached out to me. And he said, what do you think about doing a show with Arab comics so that we can battle the negative images of Arabs and Muslims in media and also show how all-American we are? You know, I'm a Jersey girl. I'm born and raised in New Jersey. I'm very American. But at the time, we were feeling very other. So we decided to do an Arab comedy show, and that was another turning point in my career. First of all, we didn't think anyone would come. Second of all, there weren't a lot of Arab comics, because again, immigrant families don't tend to let their kids do arts. So we went out there and we were like, come on, Lourdes, you're funny. Just be a comedian. Like We were literally pulling friends off the streets that had guts and putting them on stage and being like, look, we have Arab comics. Wow. So, so how big was your lineup the, the first seven, time out? Seven people. Mm-hmm. Seven people. Three of them were actresses. Three of them were actually comics. And one was literally my friend Omar. And we we're like, dude, you're funny and we need you. Just get on stage. I'll feed you jokes. <laughs> like, you know. And so we did it. It sold out. It was a huge, huge hit. From that, Dean and I decided to start the New York Arab American Comedy Festival. One of my biggest regrets in life is the name of that comedy festival. It is so long, and I even included the word the in it. It should have just been called Arab Comedy Fest, but instead is the New York Arab American Comedy Fest. I'm palsy. Typing is so hard, and having to type out all of those words kills me. So we started this comedy festival, and again, I'd been a bit lucky and blessed because we didn't know what we were doing. We're like, let's start a festival. We'll have comedy night, sketch night, and film night. And we partnered with an Arab theater company called Nebras, and we did this festival. And again, it was super successful. From that, Live Nation gave us our first tour, which was called The Arabs Gone Wild. And so... Is that still continuing, the Arabs Gone Wild? Yeah, the New York Arab American Comedy Festival will be in its 16th year in November. And it's funny because, well, it's funny because it's a comedy festival. It's funny because year 10, we're like, we should totally quit after 10 years. Like, this is perfect. We both have really lucrative, busy careers, don't really have time for this anymore. Let's quit. So we did a big bang out festival for the 10th year and it was so good we couldn't quit we were like we can't quit now everybody loves it so then we got to the 15th year and we're like should we quit and we went oh my god it's actually worse in 2019 than it was in 2001 for arabs and muslims and people of color and women of color than it was And a part of my heart breaks because I really didn't think I'd be battling this 15 years later. And a part of me cannot quit because clearly the message hasn't been received yet. And we have to keep doing this because I have a theory about comedy. And I think comedy allows people to hear things that they normally can't comprehend, to listen to people they normally fear, 
to change their opinion about something they hate. Because when you get people laughing, you open their hearts. And I do a joke on stage. I say, you're less likely to kill the person across from you if they're making you laugh. You might still do it, but you're less likely. And so we've continued the comedy festival. And we're really lucky. We do it every year at Gotham Comedy Club, which is a real live comedy club like we're not just a bunch of arabs trying to be funny we are people with extremely successful careers who have been on television started our own shows have radio shows and ted talks and it's when we started out we were dragging people off the street now we have to reject people because there's so much talent out there because although i'm completely in denial that i am an adult there's a whole generation of arab kids that grew up watching us now so there are kids who pursued comedy when it was never an option for us because we existed and their parents saw that not only it could be done, but that there was a lot of positive stuff that came out of it. So it must be really wonderful to be have that impact that you know that you're showing kids something that they haven't seen before. Because like you said, brown people on TV, that's not you know, there aren't that many and you with your special, you know, special circumstances, even fewer. And so you're, you're having that, you know, you can't be what you can't see. Right. Impact. And, and, and how has it changed for women in comedy? That's interesting too. So when I started doing stand-up comedy, it was predominantly men and the way that we, and not Arab men, I'm talking about men, like just, you know, It was kind of each show would have one black person and one woman. And if that black person could be a woman, then there was just one other. You couldn't have like two black people and, you know, two women. In fact, there's a really legendary story of when Richard Pryor and Eddie Murphy were doing comedy at the same times. Clubs would literally pick between the two guys. So if Eddie showed up at a club and Richard was there, he knew to leave. Because there was always room for only one. So standard in stand-up comedy, there weren't a lot of women when I started. To this day, if you ask people to list their favorite comics, it's very unlikely that they'll even remember to list a woman's name. But I lucked out yet again. So my comedy teacher was a man. But the first person to let me go on stage to do open mics was a woman named Poppy Kramer. Poppy Kramer ran a happy hour on Wednesday nights at the duplex in the village. Upstairs, Joan Rivers had a weekly show. Joan Rivers had a gap in her career. Between being Joan Rivers and starting Fashion Police, she had a gap where she was really, really struggling. So she was just doing like these small stand-up comedy shows at the duplex for like 100 people a week. The majority of her audience were village people back in the day. And so I ended up being surrounded by powerful women doing stand-up and was able to kind of map my path out by looking at the fact that they didn't have to pretend to be men. They didn't have to imitate what male comics were doing. They were doing their own stories, and I decided that I would also do my own story. But at some point when I was doing the stand-up comedy, I got so successful that I forgot the dream of being an actor. I just let it go. Because the whole point of becoming a comedian was to give myself a leg up in auditions. I wasn't seeing myself on TV. And as you said, if you can't see it, you can't be it. Where did I see myself? Richard Pryor. He was a person of color. He was shaking. He had a disability. Later in his career, he was a wheelchair user. So I was like, oh, well, that's what I'll do. I'll just become a comic. Then I'll get well-known. Then I'll get my own sitcom. That was like the whole plan. But I got really comfortable, very, very comfortable doing comedy. And I stopped pursuing the acting. And it was easy for me to stop pursuing the acting because I had this annual festival. And every year I could do sketch and get my acting fix and then go back to, you know, making money. So there was a couple of different things happening. One was I was a woman in a career that's predominantly men. The second thing was absolutely nobody was disabled nobody. None of the comedy clubs are accessible. Now they are. Gotham Comedy Club and Caroline's are now accessible. But when I started, none of the clubs were accessible. Most of the spaces that we went to if we were on the road were totally not accessible. Some theaters would have the audience accessible, but not the stage. So in addition to being the only woman, I had to convince myself 
that it was okay to ask for accommodations. And it's scary when you're the only person and you're on a tour, you don't want to be high maintenance. You feel like, what if Live Nation cuts me because I need a ramp or I need, you know, to sit down and can't stand or I don't feel comfortable doing shows in spaces that my disabled followers can't get to because even if I happen to have more mobility, is it right to shut them out? It's scary. You're like, what if I ask for too much and they cut me? And so that was a big part of my career from, I would say, about 2010 to 2014 was being brave enough to tell people what I needed. And the person who helped me do that is really interesting. It was Adam Sandler. So I went and did a show at the Comedy Store in 2006, an L.A. show. And Adam Sandler was in the audience. He loved his dad. And I did a lot of jokes about my dad, who at the time was still alive. I did a lot of jokes about him, and Adam really identified with my voice. So he gave me a bit part in his movie, You Don't Mess with the Zohan. And he gave me my own trailer, my own makeup artist. He really spoiled me. Well, trailers don't have stairs. Star trailers have two handles, and you pull yourself up into the vehicle. It's like all upper body strength. So I could never get in and out of the trailer without assistance. So I had a PA, a production assistant named Johnny Raz. And every day when it was my time to film, I would literally jump out of the trailer into his arms and Johnny would catch me. And one day Adam Sandler was passing by and he saw me and he was like, what? are you people doing? And I was like, oh, you know, I can't get in or out of the trailer without help. And he's like, then why don't you have them build you stairs? And I said, well, I didn't want to be high maintenance. I didn't want you to take a risk on me and then be so high maintenance that the next time you went to hire a person, you'd say, no, I don't want a disabled person. It's, it's too much money. It's too much work. He starts laughing. He goes, see that trailer over there? That's Mariah Carey. You are not high maintenance. And it was the moment in time that I was like, oh, it's actually okay to ask for accommodations. And my job is to tell people what I need. So it's hard because now, 20 years into my career, I'm a loud, proud, disabled woman. 10 years into my career, I still wasn't. I was more comfortable passing and not having people really realize I was disabled or realize it, but it was okay because she was still quote unquote normal. That moment Adam helped me not be ashamed of it anymore and also helped me have the confidence to go out and say, these are the things that I need. These are the things that will help me um, function better. Well, and also by doing that, by having the the guts, the boldness, the bravery to ask for what you need, you also give other people permission to do the same. Yes. Right? And, and But that came a lot later. Mm -hmm. So while I was battling for like ending racism against brown people or bigotry against Muslims or even violence against women, I wasn't really advocating for the d disability community on the level I should. That did not come until 2014 when I got my TED Talk. Ah, so let's talk about your TED Talk. Yeah. Uh, what, what, what's it called again? <laughs> it's called 99 Problems and Palsy's Just One. And it was like, it, it just exploded, right? Yes. It was like one of the most watched TED Talks ever. Yeah. So the TED Talk was really interesting. I, um, there's a preface to the TED Talk. So I'm a touring comic. It's 2010. And all of a sudden, all the men who I'm touring with book a show in Saudi Arabia. Now, I've traveled all over the world. I'm a global comic. I speak English and Arabic, so I do stand-up comedy in the Middle East, too. I've been in Beirut and Palestine, Jordan, Lebanon, you name it. I've done Cairo, where I got deported, which we'll talk about in a second. But um, all the guys went to Saudi Arabia, and a newsman named Keith Elberman. There's this news personality. His name is Keith Elberman. He used to have a show on MSNBC called Countdown with Keith Elberman. Now he's at ESPN on SportsCenter. So Keith needed an Arab comic to come on the show. They called every single one of the guys and couldn't find anyone. And when they realized that all the guys were gone, they were like, well, Maysoon's home. She didn't go to Saudi. Call her. So they called me and they brought me in to commentate on the show. And I became a full-time contributor on Countdown with Keith Oberman. Just another little bit of luck, huh? 
<laughs> luck and a mentor. So I, I talk about this in my TED Talk. When I went to be on Countdown with Keith Oberman, they put me on a spinning, rolling chair. And I'm very wobbly as a human being. And it was extremely, extremely hard for me to sit on the spinning chair without rolling off the screen. Like the entire time I was gripping the table that I was being interviewed at so that I wouldn't roll off the screen, using my ab muscles so that I wouldn't spin in the wrong direction. And I was livid. And I really thought he'd never invite me back. Keith Oberman fought for me, made me a full-time contributor, and he mentored me. He taught me how to become a commentator. I've always been a talker, but when you have to talk in two and a half minutes, you have to learn how to talk in sound bites. And he taught me how to do that. And on my second day, he said, the first time he brought me in, it was an Arab issue. The second day, he said to me, I'm never going to bring you in on anything Arab, Muslim, or disabled again, because I want you to be a real commentator. I don't want to pigeonhole you. I want you to talk about politics, about women's issues, about the environment, about things that no one would ever expect. So he kicked open that door for me. Um, while I was on Keith Overman's show, a woman named Lorene Arbus, who runs who, who used to run United Cerebral Palsy, saw me. She reached out to me and decided that she wanted to give me an award at a banquet that she does every year called Women Who Care. That raises money for cerebral palsy. Lorene Arbus is a scion of the ABC family, meaning her mom and dad founded ABC Television. She had a sister named Cookie, who was 26 years old when she died, Cookie had cerebral palsy. Lorene's parents were trailblazers in accommodations and inclusion. So they created curb cuts in New York City. They created accessible bathrooms and they were the like basically the trailblazers of making it okay to be disabled in public. Lorene carried on her parents' legacy and started doing disability work. So when she reached out to me to give me the award, she said to me, I would like to mentor you, and I call her my fairy god mentor. She invited me to a party at her house. At a party at her house, I bumped into a woman named Pat Mitchell, who used to run the Paley Center. Pat was the person deciding who would do the TED Talks that year. Now, there's two types of TED. There's TEDx, which can be put together by anyone, and then there's TED Maine. Ted Maine is like curated and selected and you have to be really special to go. So Pat said, I want to bring you a Ted. And I told her why I told everyone who ever invited me to a show. Talk to my agents. My agents were William Morris Endeavor. I never dealt with finance, schedule, anything. Anyone who wanted me had to go through my agents. So Pat said, well, Ted doesn't pay. And I literally laughed in her face. And I said, well, if they don't pay, then they're not going to get me. I'm on the phone the next day with my agent, Jeff Lash, and I tell him, this wacky woman offered me a TED Talk, and he was like, call her back immediately, apologize to her, and get your butt on that stage. And I was like, but Jeff, I don't do freebies. He's like, this isn't a freebie. This will change your life. I didn't pay attention to Jeff. I said yes to Pat, because my agent told me to, but I put no work into it. I didn't take it seriously. They would call me up and they'd say, we need a script. And I'd say, I don't type things out. So due to my cerebral palsy, I write in my head. And then I dictate to a typist when anything needs to be typed. But all my stand-up comedy routines come from my head. All my web series videos come from my head. I don't put anything on paper. So Ted wanted me to put stuff on paper. And I literally just kept saying over and over, you're not paying me. I'm not doing homework. You're not paying me. I'm not doing this. So I was the most difficult person in the world to work with. And they said, we need the words for the teleprompter. And I played the disability card completely. And I was like, nope, the teleprompter is going to like, you know, confuse my eyes and probably make me pass out. I don't want a teleprompter. I'm going to memorize everything. I got to TED and when I went to the sound check, that's when I realized I had made like 900 critical mistakes. I walked in and it was me, Diana Nyad, the swimmer and Cheryl Sandberg. And I was like, oh my God, I should have probably written something. So I went on stage and I did what I always did in my stand-up comedy. I just talked. 
And somehow it worked. And we don't know what it was or why it was. But the second they posted that talk, it went viral. Millions of people around the globe watched it. It was translated into 41 languages. And all of a sudden, people with disabilities from all over the universe started reaching out to me. And their stories were not my stories. I had two gorgeous parents who adored me and fought for me. And I had disabled people reaching out to me, telling me how abused they were, how often their parents told them they were burdens, how their benefits and social assistance was stolen by their caregivers. Then I started to learn that I was part of the problem. How's that? that? I was going out there and telling people, one of the themes from my TED Talk is you can do it, yes, you can, can. My father's mantra while he was raising me was you can do it, yes, you can, can. Because I was a dancer and the can-can thing kind of worked for me. I was under the impression that disabled people who didn't try as hard as I did were lazy. I was under the impression that people who didn't work or needed assistance were just like gaming the system and that they didn't deserve the help. And I'm tired and I shake and I work, so why can't you work? And I didn't realize how much privilege I had. I didn't realize that walking was not a choice for some people because I was told I would never walk and I walked. So why wouldn't everyone? And I didn't realize that different people had different disabilities and they couldn't walk. That having a great attitude doesn't make it possible for you to suddenly stop being blind. Or, you know, having captions didn't work for everyone because so many people that were deaf had no access to education. And as I started realizing how under siege the disability community was, my advocacy and activism shifted to disability And it is where it is today. Now, I'm a multiple minority. So when I talk about disability, I talk about it through the lens of a woman of color, which is different than the image we see, um, which is mostly white men in wheelchairs. That's That's what we really see. So I don't just talk about disability. I talk about what it's like to be a minority with disability. I talk about the violence that the disabled community faces. And I talk about the untapped potential. So that TED Talk was in what year? I filmed it December 2013 and it aired January 3rd, 2014. Mm -hmm. So since then, in addition to doing everything else that we've already discussed, you became an An advocate. An advocate. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm a hustler. I'm a hustler. Mm -hmm. I do everything. So on the way to the TED Talk, I was doing stand-up comedy, but I was also writing articles for the Daily Beast. I was writing scripts. I was teaching. I'm a teacher. I'm a guest comedian in residence at Arizona State University, and I teach at NYU in Abu Dhabi. So I've always been like juggling a bunch of different um, careers. It was the disability advocacy that centered me. Now everything else comes out of that point. And it's an interesting journey because 20 years earlier when I started stand-up comedy, I didn't want to talk about cerebral palsy. I wasn't ashamed of my disability. I just didn't think it was funny and it wasn't what I wanted to talk about. So when I took my first comedy class at Caroline's Comedy Club, I never mentioned my disability. And the teacher of the class after I did my first stand-up routine, he looked at me and he said, what is going on with your body? And I was like, oh, I have cerebral palsy. It's not a big deal. And he was like, listen to me. The audience is either going to think you're nervous or you're drunk. And none of those things are comfortable and none of those things are going to make them laugh. So you need to explain what's going on. And so what I decided to do was I decided to couch my disability in all my other minority statuses. And I came up with my opening line, which I used until the day I got married, which was, I'm a Palestinian Muslim virgin with cerebral palsy from New Jersey. If you don't feel better about yourself, maybe you fucking should. And the (laughs) idea was, there you go. I'm disabled. Move on. After the TED Talk, it became, no, I'm disabled. I'm going to tell you stuff that you don't want to hear. I need to like work to save lives. I need to work to mainstream children into the education system. Because when I started school, um, the public school system in New Jersey rejected me. And my parents sued in order to have me mainstreamed. Because 
when I started school, there were absolutely no physically disabled kids in my class. When I graduated high school, there were absolutely no physically disabled kids in my class. I was the only one. All the other disabled kids were sent to a special school. I believe if my parents hadn't fought for me, I wouldn't be here right now doing this podcast for you. So I focus very heavily on making sure that children with disabilities globally have access to education. And I've had a very tough past two years because I never thought I'd be fighting for disability rights in America. I never thought I'd be fighting for access to education in America. But just recently, Betsy DeVos, who is Trump's Secretary of Education, rolled back 72 protections for students with disabilities. Imagine that we are going backwards instead of forwards with access and accommodation and education for people just like me. So the advocacy began to feel like life and death. And I felt like, how can I do this? How can I do stand-up comedy but still open people's eyes? And I said, oh, I'm going to do exactly what I did with being Muslim. I'm going to do exactly what I did with being Arab. I'm going to tell really tough stories in a very funny way. So one of the jokes I do in stand-up comedy is about how I was the, the designated driver for all of my girlfriends because Muslims don't drink, or at least we don't admit to it, on social media. And it's a really like funny joke where I get pulled out of the car and the cop tells me, walk a straight line. And I say, if I can't can, it'll be a goddamn miracle. And then the audience laughs and they're all hyper. And I say, oh, but I didn't know I was lucky. You know, 50% of all Americans killed by law enforcement are disabled. And that's what my audience does. Wow. And I have this captive audience that just laugh their butts off and then their eyes pop out of their head and they learn something. And as they're learning it, I'm like, so I adopted. I have a cat named Beyonce and I take them into the next journey. Mm -hmm. So they have that little factor. They have that little slap in the face, but I move on right on to the next comedic thing so that when they go home, they think about it. And they say, okay, what am I doing to contribute to this? What can I do differently? Do you have advice in that vein in terms of what we can do differently? I think one of the first things that people need to do is learn to stop fearing disability. If you ask a person, would you rather be dead or disabled? Most of them will say dead. Most people don't want to be disabled Nobody dreams of having a disabled child. You know, if someone's pregnant, what do they say? As long as it's healthy. As long as it's healthy. Well, one out of five times, it's not healthy. And we're not prepared as a society to deal with that. So I think the first thing we need to do is have people have less fear about disability and more education. I think the other thing that we need to do is understand that people with disabilities are worth investing in. We have, this is very shallow, but it works. We have the buying power of the entire country of China. People with disabilities are 20% of the population. So if you invest in us, you'll actually make money back. There's, there's a profit in caring about disabled people. And I think one of the places that we need to invest the most is in media. Why? Because going back to exactly what you said, Lourdes, if you can't see it, you can't be it. But also, if we had more positive images of disability on TV, I believe people with disabilities would face less violence. We face an enormous amount of violence due to lack of understanding. So I think education comes in so many different ways. And one of the ways that I choose to educate people is through positive images in media. So that's when the dream of being an actress resurfaced. I was like, okay, I'm doing great as a comic, but unless the audiences come to see me, the message isn't going out. What's the next step? The next step is getting back on TV. So after the TED Talk, I worked with my agents and de decided to develop a television series. And I had three goals. One, to become a rock superstar with a live money that never had to worry about rent again. Two, I wanted to do a show where the character was not written as disabled. This is very confusing to people. They're like, well, why wouldn't you write the disability? You're really proud of it. Why won't you write it? And my idea is that people with disabilities should be able to play any character that's not a biopic, right? I'm not saying that 
a woman in a that a wheelchair user should play, you know, Madonna in a biography. I'm saying if it's a lawyer, a waitress, a doctor, a landlord, why can't anyone play that role? Why can't you be blind, deaf, have polio, have a mobility disorder with me? So I wanted to write a show where the character was disabled and that wasn't the storyline. And finally, I wanted to write a show that had positive images of Islam because since 2016, there has been a lot of violence incited against Muslims. So women online always get threatened. It's a thing. If you're online, you're going to get threats. After the election of Donald Trump, the death threats that came my way spiked. And the credible death threats really became an issue. And I thought, what if I can get this really funny, sexy, lovable Muslim woman on TV and have a family who is so Jersey and so part of this country, but also happens to pray five times a day, you know, or have like crises of faith where you're like, this baked potato soup is so good, but I know there's bacon in it. Do I still eat it? You know, those small little challenges in life. And so I created my own show and it was called Can Can. And it was semi-autobiographical. So it was based on my life, but I had to change things so my mom wouldn't disown me. And I, again, because you say I'm lucky, which is funny because most people don't think disabled people are ever lucky. And it's good that you see the other facets of my life. I went out to L.A. with my high-powered agents, and I pitched my show to production companies, and I sold it to a great production company called Hazy Mills, which was run by Sean Hayes from Will and & Grace and his college best friend. And then our show got bought by NBC Studio, and then we got ABC Network to broadcast it. So I had Harry Potter backing me financially, and Mickey Mouse putting me on a network. It was the perfect, perfect scenario. And the entire thing crashed and burned. Because even though my producers were gung-ho to buy this original, unique series, the second they got their hands on it, they wanted to whitewash it, and they wanted to make my character inspirational and pathetic. At one point, my producer looked at me and he said, if your character's too successful, she'll make normal people feel bad. Now, first of all, I'm normal <laughs> or not or no one is. But that's a strange word. I don't even understand the, the, the idea behind yeah. that. I, and so I said to him, no, she's more like Carrie from Sex in the City. You want to be like her, but she also has like terrible things happen in her life where you're like, oh, I'm going to learn from that. And, and their concept was if I was strong, if I was powerful, the normal audience would feel bad about themselves. How is this chick with cerebral palsy, you know, getting the guy or the promotion or on Broadway and I'm sitting at home watching TV? And I thought, my God, you're actually trying to shrink me on my own show. Then the second battle was they wanted my character to drink. And I said, I don't want my character to drink because I feel like if I do, I dissipate the message of normalizing Muslims in America because people will be like, well, she's not a real Muslim. She's a Jack Muslim. She's drinking. She's dating. She's doing all these other things. And I didn't feel like alcohol served the show in any way. And they said, well, that makes her oppressed. And we don't want to write an oppressed character. And I said, well, are all recovering alcoholics on television also oppressed? And the final straw, the straw that really, really, really broke my back was I wanted to bring sexy back to disability. They did a poll, and I know that polls are, are crap, but they polled Americans and 80% said they wouldn't um, date a disabled person. And people with disabilities are 20% of the population. So I think we were the 20% that said we would. And so I thought, what if I have this great sexy character who's being fought over? So I created a love triangle between her, her love interest from high school, who is still like her best friend, who she couldn't marry because her parents were conservative, and a Palestinian refugee that was brought into America. And it was a great love triangle. Well, they removed the refugee, and then they made her love for the other guy unrequited. So it was just like she was invisible to him and desperate to be seen. And I was like, no, 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 no. No, 
This is not my character. If you want to do this show, you can do it without me. And the by the way, the studio and the network hold zero, zero blame. This was all the producer. Producer said, you'll never walk away. I said, Dave Chappelle walked away from $50 million. I have no problem walking away from $2 million. And I got on the phone with the network and I said, this is inspiration porn. Inspiration porn is when you take disability and you exploit it to make non-disabled people feel better about themselves. I said, I'm not your girl. I'm not the person to tell this story. If you want to tell this story, find a younger actress with cerebral palsy to play the part. I'll be a producer. I'll still be a writer, but I will never say a single word that they want me to. And I walked away. Mm. I walked away. I took my talent. I took my show and I took myself to TNT. And I went to the other network because they really wanted to work with me. And they let me create the show that I wanted to do, a show where the character just happened to be disabled. And around episode six in the TV show, her disability is going to be revealed. So like, we're going to watch her, get to love her, get to know her. And then something's going to happen where her disability is really thrown in her face in a kind of brutal and violent way. And then the audience is going to be on her side and realize they have maybe been the person who said something that was violently ableist or who didn't include someone because it was too hard to include them. So, oh, we want to go to the dance club. It's going to be too hard with her. Let's not invite her. And I would get people to look at themselves and say, why do you do this? Why are you like this? And what we did was we created a show where you have a very successful disabled person that's not semi-autobiographical. It's completely fictional. When I got a second chance, I was like, listen, not making my mom mad is way too much pressure. Can we just make everyone fake? And then I'll use all of her stories and pretend it's not her. And they were like, yeah, that's great. So it was completely fictional. I play a lawyer by day who gets sucked into the gritty world of immigration. Um, I have a fantastic half-white privilege, half-Mexican boyfriend, so she's dating like a real winner, and the complications is that her work is taking her away from her relationship. Not that her disability is a burden or that a non-disabled guy would never marry a shaking woman. It's the same issues that everyone else has, just living your best normal life. And the show is really diverse, because that's what our world is. It's set in New York City. New York City, you're going to have Latinos, Asian, white, transgender, all different types of people. And we're going to get dragged. And a lot of people are going to think, she's just doing this to like win the diversity lottery. No, I'm doing this because that's what my life looks like. Um, and just a point of, to clear something up, TNT is actually owned by AT&T. So I don't know what channel we'll, we'll end up on because AT&T bought Time Warner. And so now it might be TNT, it might be HBO, but it's somewhere in the Warner world. Wow. So are you currently in production? We're currently um, finishing up our scripts. So somewhere around September, we're not doing a pilot. We're going straight to series, which is such a blessing because if you do a pilot, you shoot a whole episode of TV, you cast it, you hire a 60 person crew. And then if you fail, all those people lose their jobs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because we weren't doing network and we went to cable, we got a straight to series deal. So now we've written like a three-year arc plus 10 episodes clear. So once our episodes are done and approved, then we start shooting. And we're going to shoot in the Bronx because I was bi-coastal from 2006 to 2009, and L.A. is not for me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so when I had the power to make my own decisions, because I'm executive producer, co-creator, co-writer, and star, I said, um, I'm not leaving Jersey. And I thought we were going to film in Queens. And then they found us a state-of-the-art studio in the Bronx. So I get to just walk over the George Washington Bridge and um, film. And we're really excited because of a couple of things. It's the first time a visibly disabled woman leads a show in America. It shouldn't be, but it is. Right. And, and also, 
I mean, there are very few shows with a woman of color leading the show. Right, very few. So it's it's, it's like you're ticking more and than also my age one box group. there. Also my age group, you know. Yeah. People like 25 to 35. I'm mm-hmm. 35 to 45. They don't mm-hmm. like that range. And here I am too. So I'm a woman of color. I'm disabled against all the odds. But it works because of the comedy. Mm-hmm. It works because everything is told through a lens of comedy. And I'm I'm really excited about it. But I still love stand-up more. Oh, really? Yeah. I still love stand-up more. Stand-up is the one place in the world where I can address all the horrors that are happening right now, right now. TV, it took three years to develop the show. Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. we're shooting in November, and it's probably going to premiere in June. Mm -hmm. But God knows. Like, that's how TV is. I literally can't tell you when we're going to cast it, when we're going to shoot it, when I'm going to be on set. So my agents book my stand-up comedy straight through, and then the TV show has to adjust their schedule to the comedy, because we never know when things are going to happen. I can't just sit around and wait for it. Whereas comedy, like, if I'm in a mood, I can get up off my couch, drive to New York City, walk into Gotham Comedy Club, and do a 10-minute set. And I don't have to worry, like Richard Pryor and Eddie Murphy did, if there's another girl or if there's another woman of color, because I've transcended all of that now, and I'm just me, and they let me go on stage whenever I want to. I'm hearing that you're loving the the, the stand-up the most. Mm-hmm. Even though you had a dream to be an actress, transitioned into stand-up to try to reach that the dream of acting. So you do that. You've also been a comedian. You've also, but you're also a, a commentator, right? I am. And I'm also on General Hospital. <laughs> so ever since I was five years old, I've been obsessed with the soap opera General Hospital. And when my career started going well, I would do interviews with people like Meredith Vieira and Queen Latifah and even 60 Minutes. And I would always say my dream on life is to be on General Hospital. And right after Can Can died... ABC made that dream come true, and I got cast on the daytime soap opera General Hospital. So now I'm a recurring character on General Hospital, and it was a really big thing because people on soaps always get temporarily disabled and then healed by love. And so it's really fun playing a character that cannot be healed. It's like the fans are really cheering for me to be healed. And I don't have the heart to tell them that it's not going to happen. So I'm like, stay tuned. Stay tuned. Just keep watching. Just keep watching. And then the commentating thing actually came from Keith. So after I did Countdown with Keith Oberman, I worked with Keith Oberman for two years. Then he went to ESPN. I'm a hustler. I do everything. I'm not a sports commentator. I just couldn't do it. There was nothing I could do at ESPN. So I had to kind of blaze my own trail. So um, I commentate on CNN. And my ultimate, ultimate goal is to do a talk show, is to do something that takes the two things I'm really good at, commentating and comedy and being on TV. So that I love acting. I'm so, so proud of the work that I'm doing on the TV show, which I'm working on called Sanctuary. I'm so blessed to have this, but it's not my final goal. I think where I would be most effective in the world is doing something like The View or like Oprah, where parents of kids with disabilities could see me and have hope, where bigots could see me and just hate themselves because I made it and they didn't, where, you know, I could comment on things that are happening right now in the time. Like the digital world is better because we can get clips out quicker. We can get podcasts out quicker. But again, when I say I love comedy, it's because of the instant gratification. It's ability to go on stage after hearing, say, a couple of thousand people at a rally chanting, send her back Mm. and talk about it right then in that moment. Not a year later when the episode finally comes out, not when I'm lucky enough to get invited on CNN. I can do it myself because of my comedy. The talk show is the next step of that. If I had a show that I was on five days a week, where I could commentate on these things, I think that I could save lives. I don't know if that's too big, but I believe it. Yeah, no, I don't think that's too big at, at all. And, and, I, and I can see that you would have a real impact with that kind of a platform. 
And then it's also very important that, you know, this TV show gets on the air and I win an Emmy and stuff like that because uh, the joke I do on stage is if I don't, I'm afraid they're going to throw me in an internment camp. In the (laughs) 40s, the only reason they took the Japanese and left the Italians was because of Joe DiMaggio. They said people would rebel if they put Italians in camps because there were all these high profile Italian celebrities. So there's a joking part of it, and there's a really fearful part of it. We live in a country right now where an American citizen born in the USA was held in a border camp for three weeks. If I get on TV, that's not going to happen to me, and I'm going to make sure that doesn't happen to people like me. There's a day of mourning for people with disabilities killed by their caretakers in America. Last year, that number reached 1,000. If you think about news reports about kids with disabilities being killed, it's the only time the murderer gets sympathy. You hear things like, the mom didn't know who would take care of them if she died. The father was just so frustrated because he didn't have any support. There's always excuses given when the person receiving the violence is a disabled person. I think if we go out there on TV and put out these positive images and show the potential, we can kind of help stop that violence. Yeah, yeah, because it's like putting a a, a, a face to it, a real, you know, individual in everyone's home to, to, to show said, them. It's humanizing it. Yeah. And the fact that there's such a distance between people's perceptions of humanity and disability is scary. Like right now we're in the Democratic primaries and there's been no dis- no mention of disability. Six hours of debates and nobody mentioned disability. We're 20 percent of the population. We are the swing vote and we're not mentioned at all. As we begin to wrap up. What advice would you give to someone, to a high school or college age student who wants to pursue a career in one of the fields that you you endeavored in? (laughs) Well, I think that's my advice. Don't focus on one thing. If you want to be an artist or a performer, also be a hustler. If you want to be a comic, be a writer. If you want to be an actor, also know how to do directing or camera work. Have different things that you can do in your genre. So before you start making money, you're always learning. Specifically for comedians, watch comedy nonstop. Learn from the greats and then figure out what your story is. Don't try to imitate other comics. Don't try to be like Dice, like Pryor. Be who you are. But watch the other comics for style. Do you want to be a one-liner? Do you want to be a storyteller? Do you want to be observational? Do you want to be blue? Figure out who you want to be by seeing the comedy that you love to see. And then write every single day. You have to write every single day. It's very hard for people. It's like homework. But if you're not writing and creating every single day, you'll burn out really quickly. The other thing is learn to fail. Learn to fail. Being a performer is all about failing. I love the baseball reference, nobody bats a thousand. You're not going to land every audition. You're not going to get applause at every single show. They're not going to laugh at every single joke. So you need to learn how to fail. And then my final piece of advice, I always say, if your dream turns into a nightmare, find another dream. And your listeners can find me at www.maysoon.com. And that's it. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. To hear more and subscribe, visit our website, professionalconfessionals.com. You can find Professional Confessionals on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.